Welcome to the Team Bath Physio and Sports Science Podcast, hosted by me, James Boyd. Each episode aims to share knowledge, experiences and ideas with the aim of inspiring and motivating you, the listeners. Nothing that you hear on this show should be deemed as medical advice and should be used for entertainment purposes only. So, on with the show. Hello and welcome back to the Team Bath Physio and Sports Science Podcast. Today I'm, I'm chuffed to introduce to you Bob Smith and Luke Vella, who are two of the senior SMC coaches here at uh, Team Bath. They have embarked on incredible journeys this year, um, both completely different physical challenges. Uh, Bob, who is undertaken 52 half marathons within the year, within 2016. Luke Vella, who's attempted a world record attempt and, and succeed in, it succeeded in this world record attempt of, of deadlifting a certain amount within a minute, um, all for a, a great cause in supporting Bristol Children's Hospital. We talk about those challenges in particular. We talk about the stresses and pressures that they've had throughout these, chal- these challenges. We talk about how that links into uh, injury management strategies that they've used and that they do utilize with their athletes. We talk about periodization blocks and how they separated and, and manage their training periods. We talk about how we monitor training load uh, briefly and, and what wellness scores and scales you can use to, to, to manage that and monitor that. Um, and it's just a great, great session so uh enjoy sit back relax and, and, and yeah take care so uh welcome bob smith luke bella to the team bath physio and sports science podcast um i'd just like to know a bit more about you both if that's all right so tell us who you are what you do what your background's been um so i'm bob um i'm a strength and conditioning coach at the university of bath um i kind of uh co-lead the the department with luke um, I've worked here for coming up to four years in September. Before that, I was at, uh, spent four years at Loughborough University, and uh, before that, I was doing my masters at Loughborough. So I've I've kind of come through the undergrad masters route into a into a strength and conditioning role, and here I am. And what what's your what, what who do you work with here? Um, predominantly the tennis program. Um, I also work with the badminton program, as well. So um, yeah, a lot of racket sports at the moment. Super. And Luke. Uh, as Bobby mentioned, uh, I co-lead on the, the S&C program here. I've been here for uh, about a year and a half now. Uh, so my main role is here with the, the judo program. Uh, I work with the TAS athletes, which is uh, a myriad of sports. We've got, I think we've got 28 athletes on 10 different sports on our TAS program this year. Uh, and also on the tennis program with Bob as well. Um, I moved over from Australia uh, in January of 2015, uh, where I worked in, in Aussie rules football, which no one probably knows about, uh, but I was in Aussie Rules for maybe eight years, and I've gone down a, a research route. I'm, uh, I'm seven years into a, into a PhD uh, with, with a little under a year to go, uh, which has looked at um, uh, sort, of, sort of genetic signaling pathways involved in muscle recovery. Perfect. So a lot of information and a lot of experience that we can touch upon throughout the whole of this, this episode. What I'd really like to learn a little bit more about is, is the two challenges that you both embarked on this year. Um, completely different challenges, both incredible in their own right. Um, but first, before we actually delve into that, I'd just like to know why you're doing them. So if I hand over to you again, Bob, what's the, what's the cause and the purpose of these challenges? So we, um, we, we kind of both embarked upon some, some physical challenges uh, in aid of the Bristol Children's Hospital. So I, uh, my wife and I, Katie, had a baby back in October um, of last year. She's eight months old now. 
Uh, when she was four weeks old, she, we um, we had a, a bit of an incident where we ended up in in uh, uh, accident emergency in in Bristol, and then it, it sort of sort of transpired that that our, that our daughter Autumn had a um, pre-existing heart condition, and um, we ended up in intensive care that night. So we spent uh, kind of four four nights in intensive care in the high dependency unit down at the Bristol Children's Hospital. Um, while they treated Autumn, we we sort of had a pretty hairy seventy two hours, and then they they kind of stabilised her, and, and and we left the the hospital yeah five six days later. So I that was that was October, sort of October November time, and um, in kind of December time, once it had all settled a little bit, I decided that I wanted to um, kind of repay or or find a way to 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 kind of repay the work that the that the hospital had done and and decided that I would try and fundraise the cost of her care back to the NHS Trust. So there's a, there's a few charities sort of surrounding the hospital in Bristol, but one of them's the Grand Appeal, which is, uh, you know, which is, is quite famed for all its um, kind of Shaun the Sheeps and, and things that have, they, they've done exhibitions in London and Bristol. So it's, it's to do with sort of Wallace and Gromit. They use Wallace and Gromit as their, um, as their and sort of Ardman anima- animations as their... Um, you know, kind of advertising group, I guess. Um, so I, I, I decided. Well, I was trying to find a way to actually do something significant enough to, to necessitate people to sponsor me eight thousand pounds. So eight thousand pounds was the cost of her care. Um, so I, I set off in uh, the first week of January um, to run a half marathon a week. For every week in 2016, um, and just and just see what see where it took me. Really, my fundraising target was eight grand, and um, just go on that journey really and see what see what happens. Just just sort of commit to it and go. It's going alright. <laughs> <laughs> Superb. So I mean, yeah, quite an incredible challenge. Uh, so 52 weeks. Yeah. 52 half marathons. Yeah. Um, how has it been going then? So you're about halfway through. Where are you at now? Um, so yeah, we're this this coming week. So I'm going to do one tomorrow night. Is week twenty three. Um, so yeah, I've done one every calendar week. So I've, there's 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 not been a calendar week of the year that I've not I've not done one yet. Um, nor will there be. Uh, yeah, it's 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 had some sort of big ups and downs. Really, I got a I sort of picked up a patella tendinopathy around. Well, it was, it was Valentine's Day actually. Um, and that lasted best part of ten weeks probably. So so kind of, you know, crippled for two or three days after you run a marathon, can't walk downstairs sort of job. And then uh, you spend the next few days getting a bit better, a bit better, a bit better, and then you go out and run another half marathon the next weekend or the next week and it goes again. Um but managed to get on top of that eventually. Um after yeah, probably like ten ten weeks I reckon that took me. Um, and since then it's been all right. I had a bit of plantar fascial issues in in January, just setting out, just going from, you know, just a moderate running load up to, up to twenty one k, took its toll, um, in probably not great footwear either. I didn't really have a great pair of running shoes, so so that was yeah, that was plantar fascial, um, just just a lot of a lot of pain in my my feet really. That transferred to knee. At the moment, touch wood, I'm injury free, so I've got no excuses, which is a shame. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, so on I go. <laughs> Perfect. And so were you a keen runner before you started this? No. 
<laughs> so it's a bit no, of a I'm very season. much. I've, I've I've discovered in the last uh, in the last twenty three weeks that I'm I'm not not really made for distance running. I'm not an efficient runner. Uh, if you've seen any photos of me in like the, the last stretch of the bath half, I'm just muscling through it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, it's um, it's not pretty, I don't think. But uh, but you know, you can do it. You, you know, you can go out and get it done. It's not it's not um, it's not impossible. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't I didn't run a lot of distance at all before that. I mean, you you stay you know fit through just working here. Um, you know, being on your feet all day, working with the athletes, joining in sessions or bits of sessions. So, you know, I'd describe myself as physically fit, but um, yeah, not not half marathon fit. Just a totally different kind of fitness really, isn't it? But um, but no, it's, yeah, it's been good. And would you say you're enjoying it? Um, it's, uh, <laughs> not, not um, in, a, in, a, in a weird kind of way, like it's a, you know, the, I'm enjoying the, the consistency of a challenge, you know, so it's, um, I was just saying to somebody upstairs, actually, it's the, you know, she's sort of saying, I don't know how you get motivated for it. It's like, but when you haven't got a choice, you just have to go. So, you know, if you trying to, trying to, trying to do something as big as this, I think you have to take the choice out of it. So whether I'm enjoying it or not, you have to get up and do it. Cause if you don't, then the challenge falls mm-hmm. and everybody that sponsored you and fundraised for you or the, you know, you'd, you'd let the, let the hospital down. So for me and my, um, I call it my monkey brain that just sort of like you know does all these things. Um, having the having the consistency of a challenge like this is it's it's quite uh, oh, I don't know what the word is. It's quite it settles you a little bit because you you know do I enjoy it? Oh, there's there's times when I enjoy it. Yeah, you go out for a run and there's nice parts. You kind of go through a little bit of a a roller coaster on a hundred minute run, hundred and five, hundred and ten. <laughs> um, it's. Uh, yeah, you kind of have your ups and downs, and it's 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 an interesting observation of psychology, really, as you as you kind of go up and down. I haven't really got the mental control to control my um, psychology for that length of time, but that's no, interesting. And I mean, I mean, it must be whilst you've got that the, the the positive nature of the challenge, and that you've got the money behind you and people spurring you on, it must be quite a tricky one at the same time. There must be quite a bit of pressure there to to keep going every week and week in week out. What, what are the main challenges you'd say you've, you've, you've had to conquer? Um, running injured is, is horrible. Um, the sort of inevitability of going out in pain mm-hmm. and spending the next two hours in pain. Um, I don't know really, it's, it's kind of, you just, I, I, I think, I really think it is, it, when, you, when you take the choice out of it, mm. then the, the difficulty, I mean, Apart from having to run for that long, and, and that being a struggle in itself, um, apart from that, the, the challenge is, the challenge is just doing it. It's not, mm. you know, I've I've found it. Um, yeah, it's tough. You know, the next one, I think, the next one is tough enough for you not to get, get carried away with how many you've got left to do. So what's twenty three on, twenty three. Um, yeah, nearly halfway. But I never really think about anything beyond because tomorrow night I've got another run, run another one, and it's bad enough that you don't even think about the one after that, or the one after that, or the one after that. Um, I think the thing that I'm struggling with at the moment is is actually planning it out in in future in advance, um, so that people come join me, that people come run with me, um, 
you know, trying not to make the, the timing of the runs too spontaneous so people, you know, people don't know when I'm going to run so they won't come with me. So yeah. I think I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed running with people. Um, that's been, that's probably been the most enjoyable one. So um, it's, it's trying to plan, plan little events in advance and getting, getting organised. Organisation yeah. probably is the most challenging thing to, to fundraise because I think I've, I've reached at the moment, I've reached the, the probably the, the boundary of my, of my social reach mm-hmm. on things like Facebook and Twitter and things like that or at work. Um, so it's about now engaging strangers and people that I've never met and getting them to come along on the journey as well. Oh, super. Mm. So you're six months on or near enough halfway. Has it got any easier? Has the runs got easier? No. <laughs> no, and I'm not getting any faster either. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you, you'd think you would think that that doing it would you would get better. I've not got better, and they've not got easier. Um, yeah, well, I've done I've done some VO two max testing down in Jonathan's lab, okay. and uh, that's been really interesting because in the first, so I do, I'm, I'm doing one a quarter, kind of a, a run to exhaustion on the treadmills, and. Um, and then you know Jonathan looks at things like heart rates, lactates, at different speeds, and, mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. And in the first thirteen weeks, I hadn't changed a jot, nothing, not a single iota of change, which, you know, you thought something would have happened. You know, we know that that sort of distance running like that isn't that effective for 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 changing um, kind of your aerobic fitness in in a reasonably fit individual, but um, but yeah. I, w- I was quite surprised by, by the absolute lack of any change whatsoever, <laughs> apart from an atrophied right leg because this patella tendinopathy, had, you know, like pain inhibition had just rinsed my VMO from my right <laughs> knee. So uh, that was pretty much what I got, wasn't it? Just no change in physical fitness, just injured. So, you know. It's, it's an interesting case study. <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll come back to the, sort of the physiology and everything behind it in a little while, if that's Yeah, right. that's fine. And we'll yeah. talk around that a little bit more. But... Luke, if we come over to you now, tell us a little bit more about, about your specific challenge. Yeah, so like Bob mentioned before, uh, my challenge was, I guess, at the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, so at the start of the year, or maybe even late last year, Bob and I sort of got to talking about where does our skill set lie in order to, like, what, what, what do we realistically do um, as individuals to try and, try and raise money and, and, like Bob said, do something significant enough that would make people want to sponsor um, sponsor us to complete a challenge uh, and so I basically set out just to try and help Bobby reach his £8,000 target as best I could um, and my background um, well my background in sports been a little bit mixed in that I've sort of been one of those people who's not very good at anything uh, but reasonably okay at a few things. Uh, I have a bit of a background in, in powerlifting so we looked into some uh, into some world record attempts that, that were a little bit different uh, and so I attempted to break uh, unofficially break the world record for the most amount of weight lifted in 60 seconds um, which previously sat at 5,530 kilos um, so it's a, it's a cumulative weight so if you'd put 100 kilo on the bar and lift it 10 times your total would be a thousand kilos um, and so my target was to try and lift 126 kilos uh, 44 times in one minute um, which I attempted back in April 29th I think it was and and fortunately enough, was successful. Um, and so, for the time being, that's that's my challenge done and dusted. <laughs> yeah. Easy, easy, easy. Yeah, take that one. Yeah, take, go on. 
Yeah. I mean, incredible. And the, the day was, was a great event. There was a huge yeah. amount of people sort of around you and supporting you, mm. cameras. It was a great, great spectacle. I suppose, I suppose unlike Bob, you, you had that history of powerlifting, so it was something that was fairly familiar to you. Yeah. What were your challenges? Um, so my challenges were, uh, I guess, uh, there was, there was, I guess the, the time pressure of, of we set a date quite early that by April 29th this is what you're going to have to do and um, and my challenge was very set in stone so unlike a lot of the athletes that, that Bob and I both train I knew exactly what was going to be on the bar I knew exactly what my challenge was and the challenge wasn't going to move in terms of how much I needed to get done I just needed to get myself to a level to be able to do that um, and so for me uh, while I'd, I'd been competing in powerlifting before the sheer volume of training uh, in that four-month block was 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 quite significant, uh, and especially the volume of deadlifting that I needed to take on. Um, so, I mean, I was training anywhere between eight and ten times a week, uh, and a lot of that included probably three to five deadlift sessions a week. So, just the sheer volume of training, um, and for a lot of that time, it was reasonably lonely, um, mostly because when you tell people you're going to do a session of 10 sets of 10 on a deadlift no one really wants to join in um, so yeah a lot of those sessions were done were done by myself um, and so training by yourself a lot of the time you're training sore and you're spending a lot of time trying to keep your body in one piece um, it was a pretty significant challenge um, and yeah I guess that the, the time pressure was a big thing for me we, we brought the date forward a couple of times um, to try and get as many people there as possible um, and so that just made the the uh, I guess the amount of time I had to, to achieve that goal getting shorter and shorter on the day like you said the day was unbelievable uh, but that came with its own set of challenges uh, on the day I was contacted by two TV stations and two radio stations to ask for ask for interviews and so that obviously puts a lot of pressure on the interviews wouldn't be much good if I failed the attempt and, um, and likewise when I sort of looked up in the middle of my warm up to notice that there was anywhere between 300 and 350 people standing over me watching me attempt to lift this weight um, yeah that, that's quite daunting when you've when you're really not sure if you're going to be successful. You got ill as well, didn't you, like a month before? Yeah, so I got quite ill. Uh, it, it was just a bit of man flu, really. Um, but within that time, I lost about, about six kilos within the space of, within the space of a week. Um, and, yeah, I was just caught up in bed with a fever. Uh, and so that was a big challenge. Uh, in that time, I also had to fly back to Australia for a friend's wedding. Um, I was only in Australia for a couple of days, but... Um, I mean, still that kind of interrupts training, and um, and you had that headache thing the week before. Yeah, yeah that's, that's and then cool. maybe like two weeks out, I started developing some really bad tension headaches. So I'd be midway through a set, and it'd just feel like someone stabbed me in the back of the head, which Bob finds hilarious. Oh, yeah, that was the nightmare. Uh, so I mean, basically for the challenge, I put on about uh, about eight kilos. Uh, so I usually walk around at about seventy to seventy-two kilo, and now I'm walking around at eighty kilo. So I think just the the sheer volume of deadlifting, the tension through my back uh, and, and sort of my upper, upper traps just became too much and, and started getting some really sharp pains in the back of my head. So I was kind of, for the last two weeks of my training, crawling around the gym trying to make my way to the next exercise. And yeah, so there was a few a few hurdles along the way. Okay. And that's, I guess most people are very familiar with just the art of running and just going and, and trying to track down, hit the pavements, 
some may not be so familiar with, with what deadlifting is, so could you just give us a bit of a rundown as to exactly what, what deadlifting is and perhaps the stresses that it, it puts on you? Yeah, so deadlifting is probably the, the simplest form of, um, of weightlifting where you essentially pick the bar up off the floor um, until your hips and knees are, are fully extended uh, and that would be the, and putting it down would be the completion of one rep. So my brother will be uh, the first to tell me that I've actually done a network of zero because I'm just putting the bar back exactly where I found it. Um, but in terms of muscles that it works, you're primarily looking at, at glute, hamstring, uh, lower back, and then sort of upper back, middle back to, to hold onto the bar as well. Um, so I spent a lot of time uh, trying to develop a, a bulletproof lower back. Uh, in terms of injury risk with deadlifting, lower back's probably the primary concern. Um, and so the first probably two months of my training was, was developed trying to, uh, was used to try and get a lot of volume uh, into my lower back um, and, and develop quite a bit of muscle around that area to try and support it through the challenge. Um, so yeah, that's essentially what a deadlift is. It's really basic, really simple. Um, typically, if I was coaching an athlete, you'd get them to reset their, their start position at the end of every lift, but because I... I'm trying to do 44 reps in 60 seconds. Um, I'd, I'd kind of touch the floor and go. So there, you've got you've got to develop the ability to to reactively stabilise um, your your back and your hips, uh, which can be quite challenging because while you while you make every effort to put the bar in the same place every time, when you're in that much of a rush, you don't always hit the right spot or you don't always hit the bar evenly. So you need to be able to to reactively stabilise and, and try and be in as strong a position as possible every time you try and pull the bar off the floor. Perfect. So, talking about your, your training methods as such, or your, your plans building up to the event, especially for you, Luke, was there, was there any strict sort of uh, pattern or periodization with that? Uh, there was. Um, with, a, with a challenge like that, there's, there's countless number of ways you could, you could try and approach it. Um, so, the things that, that I tried to develop, that the periodization strategy was less about targeting different, um, I guess, different muscle qualities as it was about progressing my volume throughout the, throughout the, duration, of, um, throughout the duration of my training. Uh, so the two things that I was concomitantly trying to develop was I uh, continued to try and work on my maximum force uh, under the presumption that if 126 kilos was 50% of my one repetition max, that's going to be a lot easier to, for me to lift for 44 reps than if it's 60-70% of my one repetition max. So throughout the entirety of my training, I'd have two maximum strength, maximum deadlift strength sessions a, a week, um, and, and I'd also have two to three volume-based sessions a week. And so for me, I'd try different strategies uh, to, to build my volume over time, so I, I, I trialed a few different ways of doing that, um, so one of the days that I tried was uh, one of the so in the early days for me when I was just trying to build volume, uh, I used a, a German volume training block, which is ten sets of ten repetitions with a sixty second rest. Um, so I, I, I used that that method for for probably my first two months, um, and then as I went, I started to build um, build the number of reps I'd get done per set. Um, so I'd start to work up to sets of 15, sets of 20, sets of 30. Um, and by the time I got to got to the couple of weeks leading out to the challenge, uh, I was completing sort of sets of 30 and, and, and the occasional set of 40. So for me, it was about 
building my tolerance to training load um, and and progressing how much load was going through my back each time um, while gradually getting closer and closer to what the actual challenge was going to be. Okay, perfect. And so one of the big things that uh, is talked about within the periodization plans with regards to injury prevention is having uh, those deload weeks or those weeks where you taper off the intensity or and or volume just to almost allow your body to recover. Did you have that in mind? Or were you just thinking pure blood, sweat and tears, get it done, recover after it's done? Yeah, yeah, I think the latter. Um, so I guess my, my S&C brain kept telling me to take a down week, um, but then the perhaps the obsessive compulsive side of my personality um, sort of said, just get up and get the work done. Uh, so I think for, I, I think my volume would have gotten, got bigger and bigger every week. Um, but I think through my previous experience in powerlifting, uh, my body tends to respond quite well to, to high volumes uh, and when I'm trying to, to train for a powerlifting meet I'd probably take on higher volumes than, than perhaps others might uh, so that gave me some insight as to how I was going to respond um, but in terms of down weeks I mean I had a forced down week when I was ill and I had a forced down week when I went to Australia but <laughs> they're not down weeks <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, no, no down weeks outside of that. But yeah. bear in mind that those those down weeks are always going to be relative, right? So, so you're Absolutely. not just going to so for someone doing what twelve sessions a week, you ten yeah, sessions a week, like that, yeah. then you're not going to just say no training this week. I will stay at home and stay in bed. That's you know that it, you still turn up for 10, 12 sessions presumably. Yeah. Um, you just take a bit out, take a bit of bite out of them mm-hmm. if anything. And I guess uh, one thing I tried to do to to reduce part of my volume leading into sessions and I guess how I did start to, to use a bit of a tapering process leading into the event was was I started to get rid of sessions that, that weren't highly specific to what I was doing. So in the early stages, I'd do quite a bit of well, it's assistance work for this challenge, but I'd do a lot of squatting, a lot of barbell hip bridging, um, some sled work, some prowler work um, in the jumps and throws hall. Uh, and then as I got progressively co- closer to the challenge, my number of sessions per week would disappear because those sessions would start to would start to go. Uh, so my, my overall deadlift volume didn't change, but the number of um, assistance-based exercises and assistance-based sessions that I was using to continue to build strength in other areas um, disappeared as I got closer to the challenge. Okay, perfect. So back over to you, Bob, if that's all right. So similar sorts of questions. Are you, are you supplementing your running with anything in particular to... to Aid injury prevention or with aid performance or are you just run, recover, run, recover? What's the, what's the process? <clears throat> so this is a this is a slightly different um, this is a slightly different tack to to, uh, to to Luke's I guess. Um, I'm just running. Like I I literally run my half marathon. Um, you know, I don't do anything the next day. On the second or third day I do a I do a strength session in the gym. Um, with this, with the sole focus of, of just keeping me healthy, really. Um, so what does that gym gym session involve? Um, so 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 when I when I when I did my um, so when I had this patella tendinopathy, so I was in the I was in the gym kind of trying to trying to solve it, chatting to Luke about you know, you know sort of things that you should do. So I was doing, I was doing some um, some isometric work through through the tendons, um, through my patella tendons, through my Achilles tendons. Um, and it didn't work, didn't work. But I was I was kind of on this this idea of you know the the kind of okay load a tendon with um, high tensile force isometrics, then try and build VMO, try and build hamstring and glute 
strength, um, keep your hips mobile, keep your ankles mobile, blah blah blah. Right, the, that kind of that kind of prescription that you might give to somebody with a patella tendinopathy. Mm-hmm. What I found in the end, the only thing that the thing that solved it. So I did I did that for a bit and was just getting nowhere really. I was just you know might hurt a bit less in that moment, but um, it didn't really change anything. It wasn't until I started doing heavy eccentric loading through my through my patella tendon that um, I actually made any progress. So that was uh, again I, I started with isometrics um, and kind of just trying to get full activation around my my lower body, so glutes, quads, hamstrings, the lot, and it would it, it would it would just feel like somebody was just just taking a vice to your knee and just cranking it mm. um, and that and and that's how you that's you have to go through that I think so um, I, I did that and I also once I could tolerate it I started doing eccentric loading through that tendon as well so that was on the leg press so I couldn't if you imagine a lunge position so this is my right knee I could do I could lunge on that on my left with my left leg forward uh, sorry with my right leg forward so I could lunge on the leg that had the patella tendinopathy but when it was in the trail leg position, so if I had left, right, left leg forward, right leg back, my knee wouldn't tolerate that. So um, trying to do things like, I'm a big fan of um, Bulgarian split squats, so rear elevated split squats, I do, I do quite a lot of those. Um, I couldn't do that on my left, on my, with my right leg, uh, my left leg forward, God, I'm confusing myself. Um, so, you know what? What I used to do was kind of go left leg forward and then try and do some sort of isometric work just to try and manage the manage the knee thing. But then I I was just like, well, sod it. I went left leg forward on the uh, right leg forward on the Bulgarians, trying to maintain and build some muscle mass around the injured area because it was it was wasting. And then um, on the left side, I would leg press, and then I would start really light on the leg press and try and just do eccentrics. So just just. The downward phase of a leg press on the on the bad knee, and uh, it started off pretty light and very painful, and I would say within a couple of weeks it had gone. I think that ties in quite well with my understanding of the research around around tendon management. In that tendons themselves will have an adaptive or an adaptive response to to eccentric exercise, but the other thing that you need to develop within eccentric work is going to be the force absorptive capacity of your, of your muscle and your quads and developing strength through there is going to offload your tendon. Um, so I think the response that you've had ties in reasonably well with my understanding of the patella tendon research and within isometrics there's going to be people that respond well to isometrics as a, uh, as a pain management strategy and there's going to be people similar to yourself that perhaps have an acute short term benefit from it but not a yeah. long term effect. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's actually it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts, and this is a bit of a loaded question, I guess. But it would seem, and it would make sense in logical sense, that you haven't really done much running. You've then gone into quite a significant running phase, mm-hmm. which you're you go into a range of movement or a pattern of movement that you need. That tendon's just not used to tolerate, and it's reacting, and it's become irritable. Yep. Would you, if you just kept running and ignored the isometrics and ignored the eccentric steps, do you think your body would have just adapt, adapted and no. overcome that much? No, because you no, because you got a you got a tendon that's in a, in a in what would you call it like an acute reactive. acute reactive mm-hmm. state. So it's it's not adapting as normal to training. You need you need you know a tendon will respond to high tensile load. That's 
we know we know that that's that you can't just give it high repetition load such as running. I mean, God knows how many steps there are in a. So the yeah the the load is quite high, but it's just it's not high enough to stimulate an adaptive change in a tendon. So it would have just it would have just either degenerated further or had absolutely no change. I think that ties in reasonably well with, um, with, with what type of inflammatory picture you're looking at and what type of inflammation Bob had within his tendon. If you're looking at an acute self-resolving picture that's going to take care of itself within 24 to 48 hours, then your, your inflammatory picture looks a little bit more like a negative feedback loop where there's a stimulus then there's a, 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 an adaptation, then that stimulus disappears. Whereas with, with what Bob seemed to be experiencing is more of a chronic inflammatory picture, where the size of the inflammatory response is perhaps greater than the actual insult or injury. You initiate a positive feedback loop where that tendon won't adapt, it will just continue on this inflammatory merry-go-round, if you like, where the inflammatory stimulus doesn't heal, it just keeps getting greater and greater um, if he continues to load it in the way that he is. Great, and so uh, what, what's your uh, awareness or thoughts on using anti-inflammatory methods? So whether it's your non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or icing or whatever it may be, did you use any of those things? This is like Luke's favourite topic yeah, ever. Absolutely. Well, while he's here. Well, this, is, but this has been a little bit about <laughs> what my research has focused on for the last seven years, so it's changed seven years of my life, so I'll, um, I'll, I'll give my insight. Um, my research has looked around um, anti-inflammatories as uh, a post-exercise strategy, um, not necessarily in chronic inflammatory tendinopathies, um, but within an acute muscle damage picture, um, non-specific or non-selective uh, anti-inflammatories uh, can, can impair the adaptive signaling pathways. Um, so basically with a, with a non, what I mean by non-selective anti-inflammatory is there's two different enzymes that, that an anti-inflammatory um, can, can inhibit, um, a cyclooxygenase 1 and a cyclooxygenase 2 enzyme, and a non-selective enzyme will knock out both of those, um, and basically that enzyme plays a role in, in initiating the inflammatory response. Um, so yes, it will wipe out your inflammatory response, but perhaps it will also wipe out any adaptive pathways that you get, so then the, mu- the, the capacity of that muscle to adapt and respond to the to a similar load again is perhaps compromised. Um, so the same hasn't necessarily been shown for a selective NSAID. So a selective NSAID, uh, like a naproxen, for example, is it will, will selectively yeah um, will selectively inhibit the COX two enzyme, uh, and that hasn't been shown to impair muscle adaptive pathways. Whether the same can be said for chronic tendinopathies, um, I'm not 100% sure, and I'm not sure that um, that level of research is overly conclusive yet. Uh, so within the first 24 to 48 hours when you're in an acute inflammatory stage, um, I'd, st- I'd steer clear of, of anti-inflammatories, uh, but if that continues and begins to look like a chronic, a chronic inflammatory picture um, and the adaptive pathways aren't likely to be as efficient within that time frame, then it might be a useful strategy. Perfect. And so just, to, just to clarify, so what, what's the difference between a selective and non-selective? So a selective NSAID will selectively inhibit the COX-2 enzyme or the cyclooxygenase 2 enzyme, whereas a non-selective NSAID like an ibuprofen will just wipe out both your cyclooxygenase 1 and 2 enzymes. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So a non-selective 
seems we certainly want to steer clear of those because it might just inhibit the the adaptation phase. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, I think in a, in an acute self-resolving inflammatory picture, which you'd see like with a post-exercise muscle soreness or something mm-hmm. like that, uh, definitely. Uh, but when that inflammatory program becomes dysregulated, um, then an intervention like that could be useful. Perfect. Great. Thank you. Yeah, brilliant. And so, what do we feel about icing? <laughs> uh, so. Uh, the research group that I was involved in back in Melbourne, um, uh, a, a guy named David Cameron-Smith, who's a professor at the University of Auckland, his research group just published a study looking at the effect of, of icing on uh, on similar story on, on, on short-term muscle hypertrophy signaling pathways and also long-term muscle adaptation. Uh, and when their group showed that icing similar to an anti-inflammatory interfered with the inflammatory signaling pathway and... Uh, and also downstream impaired the, the adaptive and muscle growth pathways. So the adaptation that the icing group got from the ice bath intervention inhibited the training effects that they got. Um, that said, icing can be used as a pain management strategy. Um, so it can impair nerve conduction pathways that, that essentially let your body know that they're sore. And I guess my issue with that is if you take away your body's ability to perceive pain, that that pain is there as a as a warning sign that that there's an underlying tissue histology so if you remove your body's ability to to perceive that and recognize that perhaps you go and take on loads that you're not actually ready for uh, and my understanding with in regards to specifically tendons is that it, it can have an effect on on pain but long term it, it doesn't seem to affect um infl- it, the underlying inflammation okay, so again so if you're, if you're in acute tendinopathy might be useful to modify pain, but actually, is it actually is it benefiting? There's a big question mark. So it seems. Yeah. So there was an interesting study in done in in rats where they uh, they they damaged a rat muscle and and essentially took it through a, a an icing protocol, and what it showed was that the icing intervention didn't actually change the um, I guess the the extent of the inflammatory response. It, it just delayed when the inflammatory response occurred, which makes sense because what we know is that cooling things down or, or cooling down the body slows down cellular processes so it didn't actually change the the nature of the inflammatory stimulus it just delayed when it happened and so what that kind of showed us is that your body's really uh, really well versed in initiating an inflammatory response to trigger a healing process and to, to trigger an adaptation process um, and that that signaling pathway has evolved over thousands and thousands of years and then we've come along and thought oh anti-inflammatory is an ice bath must be a great idea um whereas we're i guess at the moment my opinion is that we're still trying to manipulate and interfere with a process that we don't fully understand um so yeah no fantastic and so let's change context a little bit because i just find it fascinating so uh somebody rolls their ankle acute sprain sudden swelling Typical protocol at the minute, that sort of police protection, optimal, optimal loading, icing, compression elevation. What are your thoughts on that initial icing then? Just ask Luke. <laughs> <laughs> um, any, any, any opinions I have on this just get completely trumped by this guy's knowledge. <laughs> I think, um, but I, I guess I've kind of got to a point now where I, I've, I've started questioning everything, so I'd... I'm not sure if anything's effective. Um, my thoughts on icing would be that if, if the person's in searing pain, um, then, then icing can be used as a, as a pain management strategy. Um, 
and, and similar to compression, I think within the initial 24 hours, you, your priority has to be to manage pain um, and, and make sure the person's as comfortable as possible. Uh, I think elevation can be useful um, to help to, to get rid of any additional fluid that, that comes into this, this the side of injury, uh, similar with compression. But I think within those early stages, your body's initiating a healing response and, and that's, that's what it does so well. Uh, so where you can, you, you need to let your body go about its business because I think the level of complexity within an acute inflammatory signaling pathway or within an acute inflammatory program is so great that if we continue to try and impair that beyond managing pain, then like I said before, I think we're trying to manipulate something we don't fully understand. Mm-hmm. So I think you need to manage that person's pain using what strategies you have available to you, whether that be icing, whether that be compression. Um, but I think you need to let the body go about its business. Perfect, I think that's very insightful. Um, Luke, I'm mindful that you need to shoot off soon. Yeah. What I'd like to do is if I can get a bit of a reference list for some of the, 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 the research that you've sort of been looking at and working into yourself, I'll stick that as a bit of a link on the the website on iTunes so people, any listeners that are interested in doing a bit more reading can, can do so. Perfect. Um, I think from a general management point of view as well, you need to think about how much muscle wasted you're going to get mm-hmm. in, a, in a pain picture. Um, you know, trying to, methods that we have to try and maintain muscle mass in a, in a, in a limb or um, a joint that's not really functioning to the point where you can provide it with an adaptive stimulus. Um, so, so in my case, my, my quad bulk was, was dropping by the week. And then what, what effect does that have when you're going out and running and you've got a, a, a knee or a hip or a, an ankle that's, that's got less muscle mass on it than the other side, so you've got an asymmetry, but also you've just got a reducing ability to, to tolerate impact load or to generate load. So, you know, what's going to take the hit? Probably the tendons, the joints. You know that so so it's it's how do we how do you maintain the the function of that joint or the the uh, function of that limb whilst you're trying to manage this this small part of it which isn't isn't coping at all well. Um, so you know in my case I was trying to do um, kind of stuff to maintain VMO bulk, but I think you're really just tickling at the issue when you're doing sort of you know those. I don't even know what you call it. Like a like you're stood on one leg with a big band resistance around your knee, and then extending your knee. Yeah. You know the the actual load going through that that muscle is small. Mm. Um, so you, for me, it just comes back. You just got to you just got to get some strength training through there somehow. Mm. You've got to find a way to load. So in my case, it was I'll do one exercise for one leg and another exercise for the other leg. Not a very traditional method, but until that knee can articulate with load, then you're not doing anything with it. So Absolutely. you've just got to maintain muscle mass through it, do what you can. Absolutely, it's really, I think, right, I think it's, it's that maintenance, isn't it? When yeah. you're in that acute or yeah. painful response, it's just trying to maintain yeah. what you've got to then build upon that much. Yeah, because we know, you know, if, if, if you've got a painful tendon, then you, you could just do nothing and it would stop hurting. Mm. But we know that as soon as you start up again, then it's gonna, it's gonna flare up again because you've done nothing to change the the, the properties of that tendon so you know the easiest thing is just to do nothing but when you haven't got that choice you know for, for athletes or um, for anyone who's 
who's who's training, who wants to, you know, either go out for a run or whether they're performing at the highest level. You doing nothing isn't a choice because in in the long term, something else will just get get injured where you've you've reduced your training load, reduce your physical capacities, and then go back into your sport with a reduced capacity. You put yourself at greater risk of injury in either the same area or somewhere else. One thing I'm quite interested to know is. Okay, so in your situation, well, any, uh, any significant quad loading would have irritated that patella tendon. Mm-hmm. If you'd have therefore worked at getting stronger through various different muscle groups, glutes, hamstrings, yeah. calves, whatever it may be, if you're increasing strength and sort of making gains in the time where you can't do anything with the quads or where you're just maintaining with the quads, mm-hmm. would you then put yourself in a, a more beneficial environment to then increase quad activity and strength once pain settles? Does, does it work well? Presumably. Presumably, I mean, you know, you could do, but again, I did, you know, I was doing, um, couldn't load my, my quads that heavy, this is in the early stages of, of when I was managing it, did, you know, hamstring work, glute work, for max strength, for strength endurance, you know, trying to, trying to keep those things all, all functional, but again, it just comes down to, to, with a patella tendon that's irritated, it continues to get irritated. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know the old the old idea of okay, well, increase glute and hamstring strength to offload your knees, like a hip dominance rather than a quad dominant mm-hmm. athlete. Um, but essentially, the problem here was my patella tendon. So as long as that was irritated and irritable and and not responding to training, none of it mattered. The fundamental principle that had to be addressed was was a patella tendinopathy. And until you've addressed that, the whole picture, you know, yeah, you might be able to do a bit more work with your hamstrings and glutes, but it doesn't matter because the action is running. So it's, it's, it has to, even if they're stronger and offloading my knee somehow, there's still, there's still not enough of an offload. I, you know, you're not, you're not running backwards. Well, I think when that glute hamstring strength becomes really important is when you've got someone with a, a dysfunctional lower limb or a dysfunctional running gait. Uh, and so like Bob mentioned before, he's been training and running for a, a long period of time in terms of just being generally fit, a generally fit person who's an S&C coach. So he's been training and he knows what he's doing from a training and preparation point of view. So it's not as if we're dealing with someone with a dysfunctional limb. So I think that the changes that you would get in glute hamstring strength in Bob's specific example perhaps may not have such a such a, a big effect in terms of offloading a patella tendon whereas I think if you're dealing with with uh, Joe Bloggs who goes on a, a weekend run every weekend who perhaps has a, has a really inefficient running gait and an inefficient force absorption mechanics through his lower limb then developing glute hamstring strength I think isn't going to have a reasonably big effect on um, on the load that goes through his knee um, but yeah with Bob I think we're dealing with someone who has good range through his hips, mm-hmm. has good level of glute strength, good level of proximal hip control. So I don't think he's going to have a massive effect. Don't that. get me wrong. I, I think that if I... So what I'm saying is that the, that the limiting factor in my running at the time was my patella tendon. Mm-hmm. So I've got no doubt that improving certain physical qualities of the lower limb would increase my running performance because I've not got a, an efficient running mechanic. You know, I'm not particularly well suited to distance running. But so making changes in glutes, hamstrings, how the hamstrings function, the endurance of the hamstrings, um, like capacity of my calf um, and Achilles, things like that, 
that would affect my running performance. But at the time, that wasn't the limiting factor. It, it probably is now the limiting factor. Well, the limiting factor now is my aerobic fitness, my VO2 max. It's, I don't, you know, my muscular qualities, whilst important, still aren't the limiting factor in my, my performance. You know, my, out, of, out of Jonathan's lab, my VO2 max is sort of hovering just below 60 mils. So if I want, you know, to get faster at half marathon running, I would want to increase that VO2 max because mm-hmm. it's going to be the limiting factor in my performance. Um, yes, some strength endurance and, and all these, you know, qualities would improve that, that running performance, but, you know, the glaring thing is... It's margins, isn't it? It's finding what's It's finding which is, yeah, where do, you, where do you allocate your time? Yeah. Where do you allocate your efforts? Um, so... No, that's great, actually. That links in quite nicely. So, if... Let's change the picture a little bit. So, if you two were... And this is an open question to both of you. If you two were training somebody to perform the tasks or the challenges that you have both done separately, A, what would you do? And B, would you... So you followed that yourself. You go first, mate. Um, I'd probably start off by advising him not to do it. Um, <laughs> just don't do it. Yeah. Just don't do it. Um, uh, yeah, look, I think I, I, I personally, looking back at my training and my programming and, and how I try to prepare for the event, I, I don't think I would have done anything differently. Um, I think my approach was, it was quite methodical um, and, and involved a combination of of, of a reasonably educated load progression strategy uh, along with just some, some really basic grunt work. Um, but in terms of, I've, I prepared myself to be able to lift 126 kilos 44 times and that's all I prepared myself for. Um, so in terms of... You did a bit of Olympic lift, didn't you? No, not really. <laughs> uh, in terms of, I definitely haven't improved my ability to... So most people would use a deadlift as an ability to develop lower limb power. My lower limb power has barely changed. I haven't improved my ability to jump. My back and, and my hips were within that challenge. I guess I'd, I'd kind of tried to build my hips and my back to work in one very specific plane of movement. Um, so my preparation was solely focused on, on being able to do that. It's not a method that I would use for any other athlete that needs to jump, twist, turn, change direction. Yeah, like I said, I, I, I train to be able to lift 126 kilos 44 times mm. and, and nothing else. Absolutely, so very specific. Yeah. But I'm, I'm interested in that, so, because uh, I mean, certainly going through that number of reps in such a short period of time, you had to be pulling the bar quick. Yeah. And I would have thought that you would have generated an increase in power and the rate of force that you can apply. Yeah, I, I think the number of reps that I was doing was probably a little bit too much to get a true power development um, response from. Um, and the speed I was moving the bar at was, I guess it was just constant rather than necessarily as fast as I possibly could. Uh, it was constant, it was steady, and I tried to just essentially turn myself into one of those drinking birds that just goes off one axis and just and, and just touches the ground and goes and keeps hitting the same spot every time. Um, so I tried to develop um, how fast I could pull a bar off the floor and my speed off the floor, but in that very specific movement pattern um, as part of my overall training, but I, I, I don't think I, I gained too much from a, a speed and power point of view. I think my numbers, like now that I've, I've finished that challenge and I've gone through a little bit of a maximum strength block, I think that that training laid a good foundation and gave me an extra eight kilos. Some of it's muscle, some of it's a bit of extra 
Christmas pudding around the sides, but um, <laughs> has given me a good foundation to now build on some some maximum strength and some power numbers. But yeah, it was it was highly focused on. Well, you're well, what you're referring to is like a West Side barbell kind of speed day, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, essentially. So, so that, you didn't have much of that in your training, but. Well, I, I did. Uh, so on my maximum strength days, um, because I still wanted to get a reasonably high volume of work done within my, my maximum strength days, I, I did throughout a block of my training use a Westside barbell method where they'll do sort of eight to ten sets of three um, at, a, at a weight that's heavy, but you can still move at a good speed. Um, so yeah, I, I did do some of that within my programming. Yeah. That's interesting. And just on the power side, if you're, if you're trying to really see a difference in that, would you, and especially with the deadlift is just a nice example, would you just set up the bar, pause, and then pull as quick as you sort of through, and try and generate that rate of force there? Or if it's something like you were doing where you're just going through rep, 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 just uh, almost with an enhanced reflexive stretch shortening cycle pattern, would, you, would there be any difference between the two? Yeah, I think you'd use, you, you can use definitely use both strategies. So I think I'd use a deadlift to try and develop rate of force development. Um, and just make sure that the athlete or myself has got a really strong setup position and a good level of force through the bar and through the floor uh, before you try and pull the bar off the floor. Yeah. Um, and then I'd certainly be using different exercises if I was trying to develop reactivity. Um, I mean, I needed to develop some level of it, but like I said, that was just because that's the challenge that I needed to do. I think there's there's much better exercises to, to be able to develop. Um, reactive strength than, than a deadlift such as uh, I'd be looking at things like plyometric based exercise whether that be loaded or unloaded um, so I think something like a depth jump or a hurdle jump depending on the level of your athlete or the level of your training um, yeah, are the types of things that I'd be using rather than uh, the thing is you're looking at power generation specific to the event that you're trying to do Absolutely. so if, yeah. if you're doing a 144k deadlift and you want to do that a bit quicker, then you might do 120k deadlift and lift it quick, yeah. or you know something like that. If we're looking at look power generation methods in in athletes who are predominantly managing their body weight, say say a tennis player as an example, then yeah, more plyometric exercises which are unloaded because we know that you're going to produce peak power mm-hmm. in more or less unloaded or with maybe a little bit of load. Your peak power numbers will be highest when you've got very little load on. But then in Luke's in Luke's situation, it, he's looking at being able to move a heavy bar quickly. Then the power generation methods that you'd use would be at high loads. I think that's the difference, isn't it, between like the the, the power qualities that are important to me were, were rate of force development primarily, whereas like you're saying in, a, in an in an athletic environment, you're looking at the ability to rapidly absorb and rapidly produce force. So looking at reactive and dynamic power qualities, um, they they weren't overly pertinent to me because there wasn't a whole lot of stretch going on. It was just hips going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. You're not going to get, that. The, the movement is too slow for it to, to really... It was pretty fast. <laughs> Sorry, mate, yeah, you were, you were ticking along to be fair, but it's going to be, you know, to elicit true stretch shortening cycles in the muscles that you that, that are being worked, it's, it's you know, it's, it's too slow. It was quick though, mate. Um, um, but yeah, it was pretty quick. But yeah. Um, and on that note, Luke, we'll say goodbye to you. We'll let you get off to your session. But thank you thank very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, mate. Thanks very much for having me. No, great pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah. Uh... So over to you again, then. So with your with your training program. Yeah. Or if you were making creating a training program for an athlete from well, if they were really if they were just recreational, <laughs> to take you from no running to yep. completing fifty two half marathons within a year. Yeah. 
what would you what would you have to do? So like, I guess the if 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 say you're going from no running, so uh, the the number one priority is not get injured, right? Because if you're injured, then you can't run. If you can't run, you can't train. You can't you know there's there's other methods of training like cycling and cross training, but if you if if you're looking specifically at running, then you need to be able to run. So the the main thing in terms of developing a program would be managing training volume. I think initially, so say you were going to do it over a lengthy period of time so you have an opportunity to build in training you know kind of blocks of work i think the initial thing would be to sort of periodically increase training volume so that could be uh, the time that you're on your feet running the distance that you're running could increase you could add another session supplementary to that off feet but you're you're mainly the thing that's going to injure you with running is is impact load Mm -hmm. Um, so going from from nothing to something too quickly, uh, so so that might you know I guess in the in the very first instance. So if I was taking somebody sedentary up to sort of a, a lot of training, you might look at I don't know three to five one k runs. You know, literally going out running for five minutes in the first week you might look at something like that and then try and try and increase that that total volume over the course of if they were completely sedentary you might you might take like 12 weeks i don't know something something like that i think it depends on the depends where you're aiming for really but it needs to be systematic and it's, this is a tricky one because everyone's a, everybody's different mm-hmm. everybody reacts to different stresses and has different tissue tolerance mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a bit of a figure that's just branded around of almost a 10% increase in training load that you don't really want to exceed that on a weekly progression. Yeah. Would you, would you utilise something like that or would you just take it as an individual and just see what they can tolerate? I think it's a, you know, because, yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, typically in, a, in say, a plyometric programme, you might look to increase the, the volume of exercises, like the contacts with the feet. Um, kind of 10 to 20% per week, nothing more than that really, uh, because you know the intensity's high, you know the impact load's high, so so you need to, to, to build that up. But yeah, really it comes down to um, putting a plan together, uh, doing that plan, and being aware of what your reaction is to that plan. It's something we do, we do a lot with our serving loads in tennis, so I started trying to, well, I've been doing it for a while, but trying to um, plan periods of increasing training for, for serving. You know, we, we know that serving creates a lot of uh, demand on the, on the body during tennis, and it's one of, the, one of the big, big actions in tennis that injures players, shoulders, wrists, elbows, uh, opposite side ab to their dominant arm. So it's something that we want to build tolerance for. So in a couple of players who specifically wanted to increase their serving tolerance, um, yeah, I've, I've done that. So put a plan in place up to a very high volume, so 100 serves a day, five days a week, um, and then build intensity within that 500 serves a week. So that's 500 serves a week is a lot. Mm-hmm. But what we do is we try and send players out four weeks later with a very high serving tolerance. And then the, let's say the 300 to 350, maybe 400 serves that they come across in a successful tournament week, 
they have no problem with because they're used to it. So, but that's that's a case of building. I try and I try and build up by, um, by yeah, increments of, of load of of ten percent, per episode, no more than that. And that's that's worked reasonably successfully. But you know, I, I I've taken a a principle that we commonly apply in plyometrics, applied it to a different thing, which is serving, which. To my knowledge, no one's really done in that method before, mm. and you just have to see what happens. You have to speak to the athlete, or you, you know, if you're doing it yourself, you have to, you know, Bit of trial and error, you have to, it's trial and error. But it's a, you know, for me, it's that scientific method of of put a plan in place mm-hmm. with a with some with some context. So I know my players, good players, or you know, not even good players, because it, it's the same at every level. If you're successful at a tournament, um, you 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 could serve. Um, kind of upwards of 200 serves a day if you play two matches in one day which isn't uncommon in tennis um, and we see pictures of 350 to 500 550 serves in a week for a successful tournament week plus practice so that's 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 what I've got to prepare for that's the I guess if you're making a plan on a piece of paper that's where you've got to get somebody to at the top right of that corner mm-hmm. so where do you start bottom left how do you get somebody from Doing no running to a half marathon, which is in a, how do you how do you find that journey in a systematic way? Um, and it's it's putting the plan together and being aware of of how somebody's reacting to that plan, and then making adjustments along the way. Um, and it's tricky because the only time you'll know if you've gone too far is when they get injured. The only time you actually get a piece of solid information mm. that you've gone too heavy or too hard is when is when they get injured. So if you if you if they don't get injured, you don't know whether you could have gone faster. If they don't get injured, you don't know um, if the plan was right or you've underloaded or you you know. So it's it's trying to be very aware of the 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 acute reactions along the way, the little things, the little the little signals that tell you whether it's a little bit too much, a little bit too less. But yeah, you know we've done it with with a few different things in tennis. But it's um, yeah somewhere between five and five and twenty percent is my kind of. My kind of method. No, perfect. And I mean, you talk about those those little signals. Is there anything that you, you utilize within the tennis program, or anything that you could utilize? Anyone, average Joe could utilize. Yeah. That could perhaps indicate certain stresses, or if we are pushing it too hard. So what, what what do you tend to use? A really a really easy method that you can do, just looking at global measures of fatigue. So just your, so by by global measure, I mean whether your body is recovering well or not recovering well is a submaximal heart rate recovery test which anyone can do if you've got a heart rate monitor you can do this and you have to build up quite a bit of a database of your own information it's it's individual so you basically do this is a protocol i can't remember who put it out there it's it's, it's used quite commonly because it's so easy to implement so you do five minute run on a treadmill at nine kilometers an hour pretty straightforward for most people um you take your peak heart rate, which will be um, presumably somewhere at the end of that five minutes, somewhere around there, um, and then you take your heart rate at 30 seconds, 60 seconds, and 90 seconds and two minutes after that end, and you, you plot those, those heart rates. Mm-hmm. And then you just do that over a period of time, and you'll start to see how things change. If, say, your body's under-recovered, or you're recovering well. If you're if you're adapting to training, you would see that. So the reason you've got to track it is because if you're if you're doing a 
you know, a big cardiovascular training block, you'll see your submax at uh, nine kilometers an hour, you'll see your heart rate go down as your body adapts to training. Um, and the rate at which it recovers after it, you would expect to see that, you know, you'd expect to see that, that do similar things. But your, you know, your heart's going to give you a good indication of whether you're well recovered or not. So, um, so that's quite that's quite an easy method to, mm. to just play around with. I'll, we'll put a reference to that in the in great. the notes as well. Um, but yeah, anyone can do that. If you've got a heart rate monitor and you've got a treadmill, so you perhaps do that weekly, just once a, a week, yeah, yeah. once a week at a, at a consistent time. So um, when I've done it, when I've used it, I've done it every Monday morning, first thing on a Monday morning, after the players had a day or two days off. So they've had they they're not going to be in a a massively overloaded state or a really unstable fatigue state. I know as well as I can in, a, in an athlete's training block, if they've had two days off over the weekend, because we typically go Monday to Friday in our kind of training blocks for, for our players, um, that Monday morning first thing would be as consistent a, a time as we can get. So then we, um, yeah, we, we could do that. Every so, period of time. so then, just to clarify, so if you if you 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 spot any trends, and if you then notice a sudden spike in your heart rate, you'd be thinking, are we are we at the point where we're just overloading a little bit? Do we need to then tail back yeah. in terms of what you're doing? Yeah, it's, again, it's just being sensitive to what you see yeah. in that person. Um, I have I have played a little bit with heart rate variability, um, and the the athlete uh, little app for your phone, um, and I know, I know there's some there's some really good research around that. So I mean, if if you're if you're well into your training and you're running and you and you love logging all that stuff, then you know, uh, first thing in the morning, there's there's a, there's a few little apps that you can use. I think some phones even do it now, but it's you need to be able to collect accurate data so you can make meaningful um, inferences from it. But you know, sort of that the the little app Ithley, I think you can get. We've got the little um, the little computer chip that goes in the bottom of your phone, and uh, and um, that was a finger sensor. And it would basically give you your heart rate variability in that morning. And then over a period of time, once it starts to build a database of what's normal for you, it makes recommendations for you off the back of it. Okay. So for, I guess for a you know, for general population, then something like that could be of interest. Mm. I know, you know, I sort of, we played around with that a little bit, but the, but the fatigue in tennis is so unpredictable at times that you... There's just so much noise in a very sensitive data measure. Mm. So if you're trying to make, you know, if you're trying to make um, training recommendations off the back of it, you're just chasing shadows. You're you. It's red herrings left, right, and centre. Mm. So stop using it. Just just ask the athlete most of the time how they are. Just how they're feeling. A lot of the time, yeah. Mm. You get a decent idea of how somebody's feeling just by asking them. Um, yeah. We, we went way off tangent there, didn't we? No, we were talking about how you take somebody from like doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> how you take somebody from doing nothing to a lot. That's fantastic. I mean, a lot of, again, insightful information there. So it's just, yeah, great. Really, really good. Um, so, taking it full cycle, yeah. back to where we started, and the whole purpose of these incredible challenges yeah. that you and Luke done. So I guess, first of all, I presume Morton's now okay, everything's good with her, she's now... Fighting fit and yeah, she's yeah, she's really good. She's eight months old. Um, that incident was four weeks. Uh, so yeah, she's just coming up to eight months. She's you know healthy little baby. She's uh, she's she's still on beta blockers, 
which keeps her heart rate down. So, so the, the condition that she had is um, it's called SVT. I'll probably butcher the name of it. It's sinoventricular tachycardia. Mm-hmm. So um, her heart rate... Um, I mean, a, a baby's heart rate is typically around, I think, 100 to 130 beats a minute, so quite quick anyway. But on that night, her heart rate has a can trip into 260. That was what condition she was in. So we were, we were, we were sort of watching as they put her under surveillance. We we were sort of watching our little baby with a heart rate of 260, um, with a blood lactate of 11.5 millimoles, which is just you know the sort of the sort of lactates in your blood that you might see you know I think I think Jürgen the judo coach often tries to aim for that kind of lactates in some of his training so yeah she was in a pretty nasty state and um and she just couldn't she just couldn't get out of it so um yeah the beta blockers keep her heart rate down from what it would be normally and um and yeah she she's fine like she seems absolutely fine um but we don't know whether she trips in and out of it without us knowing so But for all for all for all the checkups and the and sort of day to day stuff, she's yeah she's absolutely fine. So we we're very we you know Katie and I are both very so grateful to to the hospital and that and that's why we do it. You know that's why I'm doing it. Fantastic, yeah. great great story. And I suppose most importantly out of the whole session then is how can how can people how can people sponsor? How can they donate? Yeah, um, yeah, that would be fantastic. I mean the 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 just giving link um, is. Uh, just giving forward slash Bob B-O-B S-M 100 um, there's some more information about you know the kind of backstory. I've also set up a little website called Bob's Grand Appeal so the Grand Appeal is the charity that I'm that I'm raising money for so it's bobsgrandappeal.com um, and that I, that I document all of my run reports on there uh, there's kind of a you know a backlog of all the little stories and um, the, the kind of journey that I've been on so far, so far, so I sort of continue to just update that every time I run, and um, there's a very rough run schedule on there, which I need to update, um, but yeah, if people can, people can sponsor me, if, if it's something that, you know, if it's, if the children's hospital is something that they that has touched them, then I'd, yeah, be really grateful for their sponsorship, um, and if people want to run with me, then yeah, just get in touch, uh, probably, how's the best way to get in touch with me? So you're on Twitter as well, right? You've got your Bob's Grand Appeal. Yeah, Bob's Grand Appeal on Twitter. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Bob's Grand Appeal on Twitter. Um, so yeah, contact me through that. that. How, how do you find your um, I think that's the same. Let's have a quick look. Um, or it might be at Bob SM one hundred. Um, you know, that's the that's the that's the same Twitter handle on Bob Bob SM one hundred. I'm pretty sure. Um, we're just doing a bit of a <laughs> search line for it. That's poor from me, isn't it? Is the uh, at Bob SM one hundred. Yeah. So there you go. You can find, find me at that. You can contact um, that one. If you want to run with me, that would be fantastic. Um, I'm trying to organise uh, probably a few events through through the country uh, with probably some f- sort of a, a repeated five k loop that people can can come and just either do one loop or they can do four loops. It, you know, it's up to up to them and, and, and try and make it a, a a much more social affair than it's currently been. So I'm probably going to do one in in Bath, Bristol, one in the southwest, sort of sort of Devon way, one in London, one in Yorkshire, which is where I'm from. 
um, and just yeah, see if see if I can take people along for the journey. Really, so try and you know if people people are running their first half marathon, then then go on that journey with them as well. Uh, yeah. Super. Well, Bob, it's been been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks, James. Um, on behalf of myself and everyone at the Team Bath Physio and Sports Science Podcast, a massive thank you to yourself and and, and Luke. Um, be great to have you on any time. Yeah, very welcome, mate. Good stuff. Thanks, Bob. Cheers, buddy.